Hello, this is Tim Rice. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. This is my third podcast. And in this session, episode, we will look at what is psychology. And we'll also take a look at obedience. We'll look at one of the most famous, most shocking in more ways than one experiments in the history of psychology and we'll use it to provide a heads up for for students who are heading off to college soon and as you might expect early in a psychology podcast we need to look at the definition of the word psychology what is it that we're studying And every psychology textbook that that I've ever looked at begins with a definition of psychology. What we're going to see is how important worldview beliefs are reflected in the way you define the word. And in fact, we can distill the entire difference between a Christian perspective on psychology and every other perspective down to an an understanding of what psychology means, what your definition includes, and what it excludes. And the importance of understanding what psychology includes, what it means, was brought home to me several years ago while I was still working in community mental health. And I'll never forget, I came home from work at the Community Mental Health Center and, and my wife and, and her friend Veronica were, were home. They were having mommy mutual support and encouragement. All the kids were, were, were off playing, socializing. And, and I, I spoke of my day. And at one point, Veronica looked at me, smiled real pretty, real sweet. And she said, Tim, how can you be a Christian? And work in that field. And my first reaction was, what? And my second reaction was, whoa, wait a minute. Have I not thought closely about how my worldview fits with my profession? So I was curious to know more, so I... I um, I wish I could say I went to the Bible first, but I, I didn't. I went to Yahoo search. This was back when, uh, before Google took over the world, Yahoo was the first big search engine. So I went to Yahoo and I typed, quote, Christian and, quote, psychology. And I hit enter. And the things that I found were, were striking. I found... Um, I found that psychology is, quote, the most deadly form of modernism ever to confront the church. I read that psychology is a religious wolf in pseudoscientific clothing. I read that psychology was an idolatrous, heretical, and ungodly rival religion that places Christians at risk of spiritual deception and demonic attack. I read that psychology is better described as psychoquackery and psychoheresy. I read that psychology is part of the great seduction in preparation for the Antichrist. 
I read that psychology is Satan's substitute for biblical remedies. And honestly, my first thought was that maybe I typed something in wrong. Maybe I, I typed in Christian and space aliens and instead. This must be some kind of ultra-fringe thinking, right? But when I understood, when I took time to understand what the writers were talking about when they said psychology is, when I understood how they were defining psychology, I understood. Maybe not agree, but, but I understood. And, and I think it's important for you to understand, too, because we're not talking about what atheists or agnostics have to say at this point. These are people who claim the name of Christ, just like me and you. And I know sometimes students taking psychology experience that stigma. You're taking what? Can you take psychology from a Christian perspective? Now, in the defense of the people who wrote those published statements, they, in context, are talking about counseling psychology. They're talking about personality theories. They're talking about worldviews, not about psychology broadly. They're not talking about the brain and the nervous system and sensation and perception and all the other stuff. It's as though they defined psychology as, quote, a whacked out, naturalistic, atheistic, humanistic denial of the gospel, original sin, and Christ's redemptive work. If that's what psychology is, a whacked out, naturalistic, atheistic, humanistic denial of the gospel, original sin, and Christ's redemptive work, we'd be well advised to avoid it. But on the other hand, you've got writers like Eric Johnson who say things like, quote, God created psychology when he made man, close quote. His article is titled, Christ, the Lord of Psychology. So clearly, he defines psychology differently. So what does it mean? Well, psychology. You all know what ology means. It's, it's the study of. So psychology is the study of psych or psyche. Everybody knows that, right? That's easy. But what is the psyche? Well, the word psyche is, like all good words, from the Greek, from the Greek word pasuke. Say that, pasuke. And pasuke had a double meaning. Pasuke meant the life force. Pasuke meant that, that which animates all life. Pasuke is as common as life. But pasuke had a second meaning, and the root of our word psyche, our word psychology, um, come, came from the second meaning. And, and the second meaning describes something uniquely human, something special. It included something supernatural, unique to human life, and different from all other life on earth. Well, what is this something special, this other uniquely human part of the word pasuke? I think it's our consciousness, right? It's our God-likeness. It's our heart, our soul, our mind. 
the question of whether or not we have a heart and a soul and a mind, the, the question of the existence of a, a supernatural human nature is known as the problem of dualism. And it's highly relevant, and, and I'll talk about it in a, a later podcast. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to understand the old meaning of Pasuke has to do with authority. What 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 are we taught as we grow up about authority? What are we supposed to do with respect to authority? What do your parents teach you about authority? Well, they teach you to obey authority, right? The Bible teaches us to obey those placed in authority over us, and it teaches us to refuse immoral authority. We know from the story of Daniel in in Daniel chapter 6 and other places that without God as one's authority it is difficult to resist immoral authority authority and and our response to it are psychological phenomena psychologists are interested in authority and our response to it social psychologists are interested in authority And in one of the most famous experiments in the history of psychology, Harvard social psychologist Stanley Milgram demonstrated in the psychology laboratory that it is difficult to resist immoral authority. And while he was at it, he seems to confirm a a biblical understanding of the nature of mankind and provides a a real heads-up for kids entering college. In, in Stanley Milgram's obedience study, it, it started the year and the month I was born, July 1961, and it's shocking. Not my birth month, but the experiment was shocking in more ways than one and, and disturbing. And what Milgram found was that average normal people would, would readily inflict very painful and perhaps even harmful electric shocks on innocent victims when instructed to do so by someone in a position of authority. Milgram's experiment, 1961, wasn't that long after World War II. Shortly after the end of World War II, um, there were a, a series of trials called the Nuremberg War Criminal Trials. And it's interesting that in the trials, time and time again, people who had actively or or passively participated in the atrocities of the final solution claimed that they were just following orders, that they were just being obedient to authority. So to try to understand obedience to authority, Milgram constructed this elaborate deception. It involved a, a learner and a teacher, a researcher, and an ominous-looking shock generator. He, he recruited participants supposedly to study the relationship between punishment and learning, but the real purpose was to learn the factors that led some people to commit harm to others when told to do so by someone in authority. And in the deception, the the subject is made to believe that he's one of two subjects. But he's not. The other subject, quote, subject, 
and the experimenter are both confederates they're both paid actors not confederates being from the south but they were in on it they were part of the uh, part of the setup part of the deception so the one real subject is made to believe that he is selected by chance to serve as the teacher when in fact it's fixed it's fixed so that 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 every subject every real subject is made to believe that that they were selected by chance to be the teacher the paid actor is the learner in every trial and the the researcher is the researcher obviously in in every trial the ruse the the deception continues in um, demonstrating to the subject to the teacher that a shock cuff delivers a shock so the the experimenter takes the subject and the other paid actor behind a screen and attaches this cuff with a wire to the wall to the to the teacher's wrist and says this is what the real learner is going to experience in a minute here we'll show you and they give him a little electric shock the only that's the only shock that's given in the whole experiment and it's given to show the teacher that when he flips a switch on the other side of that wall that the guy sitting there now the paid actor is getting a shock are you with me so he believes that the shock generator works because he felt it himself. So then they switch roles. They, they put the cuff on the learner's wrist and the teacher goes around to the other side of the wall and, and sits in front of this ominous looking shock generator. This big rectangular box with switches, um, a series of switches, each labeled in, in 15 volt increments. You can go online and see photographs of this shock generator. And, and, and each switch is labeled from 15 to 450 volts. And they're toggle switches. So when you switch, flip the first switch, it stays up. So you can see which shocks have been delivered and which, which haven't. And the last three switches are marked XXX. The teacher then reads a series of words that the learner was to memorize the learner is was said to have to memorize and then the teacher was to to um, give the learner one word of a word pair that they were supposed to have memorized and if the the learner got it wrong the teacher was instructed to, to, to deliver a shock an ever-increasing shock level for each incorrect answer. Now the learner made mistakes according to a script. The teacher couldn't see the learner but the teacher could hear the learner's reaction to each shock. So early errors, early mistakes got little shocks so the teacher heard ouch later as the shock level increased the teacher heard ouch 
open the door and get me out of here. And then later, hey, that hurts. Let me out of here. Eventually, the teacher heard banging on the wall and complaints of, I have a heart condition. Let me out of here. And then silence. No response. Zap. Next question. No response. That's wrong. Zap. No response. Next question. Zap. Now, at some point, in response to what the, the teacher, the subject, was hearing from the other side of the wall, in response to the complaints, each teacher turned to the experimenter and asked to stop, or at least questioned whether to continue. Now, the, the experimenter, the paid actor, it wasn't Stanley Milgram, it was a, a stern, professorial-looking guy, tall, wearing a white lab coat. And he had been trained to provide the same four responses when the teachers complained. So the first time the teacher questioned whether to continue, the experimenter said, please continue. The second time, he said, the experiment requires that you continue. The third time, the teacher says, hey, the guy says he has a heart condition. LOL, I bet y'all didn't know that. I guess we should stop now. The experimenter said, it's absolutely essential that you continue. The fourth time the teacher complained, the experimenter said, you have no other choice. You must go on. Now, if the teacher still wished to stop after these four verbal prods, it, it was over. Otherwise, the shocks continued until the subject had given the maximum, 450 volts, XXX, three times in succession. So the question for you is, well, what would you have done? What, what do you think you would do if you were a subject in this experiment? And what do you think these middle-aged white guys from New England back in 1961 did? What percentage do you think went all the way? And why do you think that? Now, before the experiments, before the experiment, it said that Milgram went to his colleagues there at Harvard and, and asked what they thought, what, what percentage they thought would go all the way. And they predicted that one to three percent because they knew that one to three percent of the population were psychopaths that just liked hurting people. If Milgram had asked you before the experiment from your perspective on the nature of mankind, hint, hint, fallen, hint, hint, sinful, based on what the Bible teaches about the heart of mankind, what, what might you predict would happen? Now, Milgram's experiment is it's famous. There's a lot been written about it. There's a movie that came out a few months ago about it. It's, it's famous in part because it was so deceptive and unethical. It's just plain wrong to do that. Um, even, even after the experiment, when they brought the, the, the learner out from behind the wall and showed him, ha-ha, nobody really got hurt. Those weren't real shocks. The, the, the subjects went home to their wives and kids knowing that they believed it was real. 
unethical, just plain wrong to do that to people. But it's, it's also famous because of what it says about us. Now, Milgram performed the study under a number of different circumstances. In, in some conditions, there were two teachers. And in some, the teacher and the student were in the same room. And in, in some, the teacher and the student were touching. Um, but in the trial I described, 65% delivered the maximum shock. Now... Here's something that's interesting. If you read Milgram's original research, he includes um, in information from the debriefings. Milgram didn't control for religion. He didn't ask. But in his data, he notes the professions of the subjects. And he gives quotes from the debriefing. And one of Milgram's subjects was a professor of Old Testament theology. And, and this subject disobeyed authority. He stopped giving the shocks shortly after the first protest. And he explained his actions saying this, quote, if one had as one's ultimate authority God, then it trivializes human authority. He speaks a little bit like an Old Testament theologian. What he's saying is, if you've got God as your ultimate authority, then human authority is trivial. So why, what's the point of telling you this story? If, if you're like me, you answered my question, what would you do if you were in this situation with, with well, I hope I would stop. I hope I would stop giving shocks. I hope. I tell you the story because without God as your ultimate authority, when you get to college, you'll be flipping switches metaphorically because someone in authority tells you to. It's difficult to resist immoral authority, and that includes you. That means you. We didn't need Stanley Milgram to tell us that it's difficult to resist immoral authority. Now, no student heads to college planning to walk away from their faith while they're there. No one goes to college planning to conform to the ways of the world. That's silly. You know about Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and you're on the lookout. You're ready for some Egyptian in robes telling you to bow down and worship false gods and believe in the Buddha. You're ready, but, but that's not what it's going to be like. Chances are, it will be a psychology professor. And your psychology professor at State U will probably teach you that psychology is the study of the brain and behavior, period. Nothing more. And not only that, he or she... Although there are many fine Christian psychology professors, chances are your professor at State U will, is more likely than any other professor on campus to be an atheist. And they may attack your Christian worldview as unscientific. 
the claim your worldview is irrational, that it's prudish, that it's exploitive, that it's controlling, that it's inhibitive, that it's oppressive, oppressive, not impressive, that it's naive, but it's not. They are, in a way, demanding your obedience. To them, religious beliefs are something that intelligent people will grow out of. I tell you about Stanley Milgram in part because of what Richard Rorty wrote. Richard Rorty, R-O-R-T-Y, he wasn't a psychologist, he was an educational philosopher. And he wrote this, quote, I, like most Americans who teach humanities or social science in colleges and universities, try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. So we are going to go on, we, so we are going to go right on trying to discredit your beliefs in the eyes of your children trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. Close quote. So my point is the command to obey immoral authority, the command to believe things that are anathema to your Christian worldview will come from somebody who looks like me, a handsome, professorial type, probably wearing a tweed jacket. The command to believe things about human nature is going to come from someone who looks like me, and it's going to be in your face, and it's going to be subtle. And the definition of psychology, which is subtle, illustrates that well. We need to adopt a big definition of psychology. and We don't need to be freaked out, but we do need to be forewarned. I'll close with... Um, an interesting study um, following the Vietnam War. And in the Vietnam War, American soldiers were brainwashed and made to accept immoral ideas with torture and, and other brainwashing techniques. And researchers wanted to know how to resist, what factors affect our ability to resist brainwashing. Now, I'm not drawing an equivalency between brainwashing in a Vietnamese prison camp and, and college psychology class, but I think the finding is relevant. And, and what they found was by simply exposing soldiers to the, brain, to the brainwashers' ideas and their techniques made the soldiers better able to resist. It's like, look guys, heaven forbid you get kidnapped, get captured, but here's what they're going to want you to believe, and here's what they're going to do to you to get you to believe it. And that's what, that's what our approach should be. Look, guys, here's what they want you to believe. Here's what they're going to say to get you to believe it. And here's the Christian response in advance. We aren't scared. Thank you for listening to my third podcast it's beside the point completely, but I didn't start and restop this stop and restart this one at all. So maybe I'm getting a little bit better at this. This episode was sponsored by Tina's T 
tie-dye. Yes, Tina's tie-dye. My wife Tina does the best tie-dye in the whole world. And you can see it at tinastiedye.com or on Facebook, of course. Speaking of Facebook, I really would appreciate it if you'd go to my Facebook page, um, Homeschool Psych and Psychology, a Christian Perspective, and like it. I'd like it if you bought my books. That's what I do for a living is write psychology textbooks to equip Christian students in advance for what they're going to face when they get to college. So thank you, and, and I'm already looking forward to podcast number four.